Okay, we are in uh, the book of Isaiah this morning. If you want to turn there with me, we're in Isaiah chapter 32, and we'll be focusing on verses 9 through 20. As last time we were in chapter 32, we ended at verse 8, and so we're picking up from there. So if you'd look at it with me, we'll read that text as we begin. Again, this is Isaiah chapter 32, verses 9 through 20. Rise up, you women who are at ease, hear my voice, you complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease, shudder, you complacent ones, strip and make yourselves bare, and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken." The populous city is deserted, the hill, the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys and a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured out from us on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, and then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and the righteousness abide in fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, and secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places." And it will hail when the forest falls down. The city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. There we go. Let's look at verse 9. When we look at verse 9, what it tells us immediately and what it focuses on, what it draws our attention to is women. Now, let's just... Be reminded of what it's saying here. Rise up, women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. And a little more, and you shall shudder, you complacent women. Okay, so it's it's talking about some women who are at ease, who are complacent. This is not the first time that Isaiah has mentioned this group of women. Back in chapter 3, verse 16, actually from verse 16 all the way to the beginning of chapter 4, he goes into quite a bit more detail about these women and what exactly their mentality was. Okay, what exactly they were doing and why he might direct his comments toward these women. It says in Isaiah 3, 16 and 17, The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, they walk with outstretched necks, they glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. The Lord will strike the scab of the heads of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will lay bare the secret parts. Now, if you remember that sermon, remember the tinkling with the feet was a reference to, at the time, bells on their ankles of women who would entice men? Okay, so that's what that's talking about. It's talking about these women who are concerned with an outward appearance. They're concerned about enticing men. What they're concerned with is their outward beauty, and nothing else matters. This is the focus of their life, and so what are they at ease about? They're at ease about the realities of life, and the first thing I want us to see here is this, is that there is a temptation to give the superficial priority over the significant, or you may say critical. There's a temptation. We see this when you contrast proper conduct for women against the conduct for women that we're currently seeing. All right? I want to show you that in just two different passages. Proverbs 31.30, it says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, 
Most of the women in this room are probably familiar with that. Okay, the whole Proverbs 31 thing. I got it. But listen to what it says. Charm is deceitful. What were these women focused on? Charm. Beauty is vain. What were these women focused on? Beauty. But it says, to contrast that, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Okay? So that's significant. But there was a superficial reality that the women were focusing on, right? The beauty and the charm part, that was their focus. Their focus was on the superficial, but they neglected the significant aspect, which was a heart matter. 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. Do not let, this is addressed to women, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be in the hidden person of the heart, with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Okay, so again, we see a contrast between the superficial and the significant. Now, this is all important for setting up who exactly that Isaiah is addressing. He's addressing women who focus on these superficial realities of life rather than focusing on the important, critical aspects of a person. Now, let's just stop right here for a second because we got pretty heavy pretty quick here this morning, right? I understand that. But the text got pretty heavy pretty quick. Here's what he's saying. There's a tendency specifically in this context for the women to focus on external realities that are insignificant, superficial. For you to look good physically is a superficial reality. And if someone is telling you something different, they're lying to you. Okay? You need to know that. Okay? The way you dress how nice your clothes are, the way your hair is, know what your hair looks like. Okay, if these things are significant to you, these are the important things I got to stress, then you have been lied to, you've been fooled. Because the significant things lie within the heart. By the way, this isn't just true for women, even though that's what Isaiah is addressing. What might it be for, for men? Well, sometimes the same things, superficial realities, the way you dress, the way you look, the way you appear to people. But sometimes it could be strength or leadership, and that turns into anger and manipulation. And so you want the outside appearance to be tough and rugged and commanding, and you're focusing on external things. that Those things aren't what matters. What matters is the heart. And that's what you should spend your time on. That's where your focus should be, is not on the external person, but on the heart. Okay, you need to focus on the heart. So he says these women are at ease. They're complacent. All right, complacent in this context, it's meaning they feel safe. They're full of confidence. They're unsuspecting of anything that might possibly be happening to them. Okay, a false sense of trust, security. They're acting as though nothing in the world can affect them. Nothing can bring them down. When things are going well for you, things are going well for your family, what you tend to do is say, whether you say it out loud or not, you get into this place where you say, nothing is going to happen to me, and so therefore I don't need to work at anything because so, everything's going fine. I got a house, got a job, things are going pretty well. You let your guard down. That's what happens. Your guard is let down. And what does it turn into? I want you to write this in your notes that Physical prosperity, as we're seeing here, 
Physical prosperity tends to breed spiritual apathy. That's something you probably already know, right? Physical prosperity tends to breed, tends to, doesn't always, tends to breed spiritual apathy. What is apathy? You shrug your shoulders and you can really care less about it. It's not important. So these women were. They said, nothing is wrong, really. I'm just living my life focusing on superficial things while there are significant things at play. I need to tell you, because the general tone and demeanor and amount of eye contact that I'm getting here tells me that, one, you're uninterested in what I'm saying, or two, you're very interested in what I'm saying, and, but you don't like to hear it. Okay, so... What we're saying here matters for every single person in this room. This is how we are as American Christians. Generally speaking, Christians living in America have a tendency towards physical prosperity. I have what I need. There is no one in this room. The poorest person in this room is prospering physically. Do you know that? So we all have a tendency to do what? For spiritual apathy. What is apathy again? Right? You could, you just, you, it's just there. You could care less about it. Okay? It's not a focus, really. What do I need to pray for if I already have what I need? What do I need to pray for God's protection if I'm already protected? We have an army after all. Why do I need to pray for things that I already have? And so we don't humble ourselves in prayer. We don't need God. We don't need Him. We don't need to trust in Him. We don't need to rely on Him. Physical prosperity has a tendency for all of us in this room. So we just shrug our shoulders towards spirituality. And if you're not there in this moment, you have been there recently. Because that's what happens. And because we live in a prosperous country. Remember the words from uh, Revelation 3, 15 through 17. This was written to the church at Laodicea. You know this, but just be reminded of what it says. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm, you are neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, you've probably heard a lot of sermons on that maybe in the past, but being either hot or cold means that it was useful. Okay? Cold water, useful. Hot water, useful. Lukewarm water, breeding ground for bacteria, useless, spit it out of my mouth. Okay, so that's why he wants them to be useful. It doesn't mean on fire for the Lord or cold for the Lord, okay? It's not what it means. It means useful water contrasted with unuseful water. All right, so what I'm saying to you, he says, for I say, I, here's what you say when you were in that lukewarm place. Listen to what it says. I am rich. I have prospered. I'm not in need of anything. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You say, but I see, but I have clothes on my body. Exactly, because he's not talking about the superficial things about your body, because that's not what's important. What is important is a heart and spiritual matter. And we better get with it, or prosperous American Christianity is going to drag us down into the pits. Because we shrug our shoulders, we're indifferent towards our spirituality because we say, I'm, I've got everything I need. But you don't realize your spiritual condition. So what does he say to these women? He says, rise up. 
hear, give ear, and shudder and tremble. That, that's his call to these women. These complacent women who are at ease, listen to what I'm saying. The harvest is not coming. There's going to be thorns and briars growing all over this field instead of grapes. Of course, he's talking about a wine harvest here or gra grape harvest for wine. Women living their lives unconcerned with the true priorities of life, but yet they're on the brink of disaster. We have a nine-month-old baby, you know, at our house. Here's the thing about babies. They have no sense of the edge. Okay, if you have a baby, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is no sense of, I'm about to fall off of here. Let's keep going. I tested Lena's sense of, or not Lena, Cora. Cora's, which one is it? Cora's <laughs> sense of the edge the other day. She was crawling around on the bed because her new thing is she's crawling. She'll grab something. She can pull up a little bit. So she was crawling around on the bed. And uh, I had a hold of her, okay? I had a hold of her, okay? I had a hold of her ankles, both of them, okay? Nice and securely, in case you're about to judge me here. And she was, I was just curious, if I wasn't holding on to her, would she just go right off the edge? What, what place is she at right now? And absolutely, she dropped the toy, and she was army crawling, and she just went right off the edge. I was holding on to her, but she just went, unconcerned. But she was on the brink of disaster, Unconcerned. Just kept going. Fall headlong right into the pit. And this is those who are unconcerned with their spiritual state. I don't care. But you're on the brink of disaster. I don't care. I can't tell. Things like, seems like things are going pretty well. I'm crawling right along. No problem. Until you get to the edge. And all of a sudden you realize. I'm going to read another passage here for you while we're thinking about this. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. Listen to this. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So pause right there. First of all, he's saying, I don't need to tell you any details because you already know that it's going to come without warning without anticipation, you, you're not going to be able to tell and you're not going to be prepared in the sense that you don't know when the thief is coming and it's coming in the middle of the night where no one can see, okay? So that's what he says about when that time will come. But he says in verse 3, while people are saying, listen to what the people are saying, the Lord is about to come, here's what people say, there is peace, there is security, but then sudden destruction, it will come on them like labor pains. The women know exactly what's going on here, right? You're not really anticipating that until it hits. And all of a sudden, the pains come and they realize they will not escape. But verse 4, it says, But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day is no surprise to you, like the, uh, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep then. But let us, here's the call, be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But we don't belong to the night. We belong to the day. So let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're getting somewhere. Listen, verse 11 is significant. Who died for us, seeing that we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 
So before we move any further, and we're talking about how people are in this state of spiritual apathy, that they kind of shrug their shoulders about their spiritual state. Now listen, this can be for those who are either saved or unsaved. People who are unsaved shrug their shoulders about their spirituality constantly. That's all they can do. But for us who are believers, who have faith in Christ, who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, do you know that you can be the one who shrug your shoulders at your spirituality? Both situations. But it says, specifically referencing those who are believers, therefore, encourage one another, build one another up. And so what does this tell us? The believers have a responsibility to work at keeping each other awake. Because we belong to the day, not to the night. And we ought to be fully aware and sober, recognizing everything that's happening around us. What is, the, what is the imagery here? Being awake and being sober in the daytime means that you are evaluating your own spirituality. You are constantly in the Spirit of God, serving. You are trusting in the Word of the Lord. You are putting away sin, putting on Christ. You are actively pursuing spirituality, okay? Now, to be in the darkness means that you have closed your eyes intentionally, and you are walking around with no care for what's around you. Do you see the big difference? Those who are in the darkness, those who are not believers, have no option to just open their eyes and say, oh, I better not step on that. That's bad. Those who are, in the dark, those who are not believers who are in the darkness, they stumble and they fall all day long. But we who are believers who have been transferred into the kingdom of light, we are in the light, but what do we do? We close our eyes. And we stumble, like the people of the darkness. But that's not us. We don't live in the darkness. We live in the light. And so what is the call? Keep each other awake. I used to take trips from Louisville, Kentucky, up to Flint, Michigan. And it was about a seven-hour drive. And I did it somewhat frequently, at least my first year down there. And I had a friend who we both were from the same place. And so we would carpool drive together. Now, what was our job? Keep the other person awake because... Of course, we'd drive, you know, from about midnight till the morning time for whatever reason. I don't know. I don't know why someone would do that. Uh, but that's what we did. And uh, it was my job to keep him awake as he was driving. It's his job to keep me awake while I was driving. Now, here's, I'm just going to give you some glimpse into my life here, okay? When it wasn't my turn to drive, I wasn't good at it. I would sleep. I would sleep. And I remember waking up one time, and I shook myself awake, and I see him over there like this. <laughs> and I woke up, and he looked at me, and he said, can we switch? <laughs> Man, something bad could have happened, right? He could have fallen asleep. But when you're left on your own, you know that's exactly what it's like. You try to keep yourself awake. We see the importance of the church. Keep each other awake. You see someone drifting off to sleep. You don't care? You don't care? Wake them up. Encourage each other with these words. Build one another up so that you might stay awake. You keep your eyes open. Let's look at verse 15. 
Now, stuff has been difficult for these women so far. Basically, bad news about these women who are at ease and complacent and on the brink of destruction, but they don't care. He says, and this place will be a wasteland. And thorns and thistles are going to sprout up and the the high places and the exultant city, you know what that's going to be? It's going to be a place where the wild animals roam. That's what he's set up until verse 15. And so here's what he says next. Until, big change here, until what happens, what significant moment? Until the Spirit is poured out from us on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. Whoa, big change. So when the Spirit's poured out, the wilderness where there's thistles and thorns and wild animals. No, now it's going to be a fruitful field. And then it says, and that fruitful field is deemed a forest. And then, verse 16, and then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in that fruitful field. Now, we're talking about justice and righteousness. Now, all of a sudden, we realize what? We're not talking about a field at all, are we? If justice and righteousness are in that field, we're not talking about a field. What are we talking about? Well, it says, and uh, I'm going to make a couple of references in the New Testament here, Mark 1.8. I have baptized you with water. This is John the Baptist. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So there's an anticipation of some event coming, right? Luke 24.49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. From where? From on high. Is that not exactly what's happening? Until the Spirit is poured on us from high. That's what Isaiah 32.15 says. Okay, the same event is being prophesied, but it's about to happen now. John the Baptist came to prepare the way. He says the promise of the Father is about to come. He's been promising it, not just since John the Baptist, but from the prophets. Okay, the prophets have been testifying and prophesying that the Spirit is coming. And now we've been waiting so long, it's about to be here. Jesus is coming. I'm baptizing you with water. I'm not the Christ. But he's coming, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then Acts 2, 1 through 4. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, all were together in one place. Suddenly there came a sound uh, from heaven, like a rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues of fire appeared to them. They rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And lastly, Acts 2, 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When, in Isaiah 32, the ultimate fulfillment of this was not a righteous king who would come rule over them, such as Hezekiah, right? That wasn't the fulfillment of the Spirit of God bearing fruit here. The Spirit of God and righteousness and justice coming and producing fruitful fields came at Pentecost. Okay? This was the big moment that had been anticipated. The sending of the Holy Spirit due to the completed work of the Son of Jesus Christ. The wilderness becomes a fruitful field. A place where there was once only death, barrenness, there is now life and fruitfulness. And how was it produced? By the Spirit of God that was sent from on high. How was it accomplished? By justice and righteousness. I'm going to give you just a little summary statement here. Um, It's in your notes. The peace and rest of the Holy Spirit are the fruit of justice and righteousness wrought by God in Jesus Christ. Okay? What does that mean? How does that look? Let's look at it. When justice and righteousness are planted, what springs forth from the ground 
is what? Let's read Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, death and barrenness, okay, that's the barren field, so as one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. So as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So if there's a little equation here, what it is, is righteousness and justification equals life. So righteousness and justice are planted in the ground, and what is produced? Life. There is a barren, dead field. No life in it. So what do you plant in the ground? I don't know, seeds of some kind, right? So... But we're not talking about a field. Okay? What needs to be planted? Righteousness and justice are the two things that need to be sown in order for life to be given. All right, so can we, the question is, this righteousness and justice that Isaiah is talking about, how does it come about? Let's look at the three words here, or the three, three, uh, three ideas. Justice. This is the idea that God is the only judge. Okay, you can never bring about your own justice. Romans 12, 17 through 19. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, right there, I, I understand that we could have an entire sermon series on that passage right there, that... We are to live a peaceable life with everyone so far as it depends on us. But if it doesn't depend on you, you're not to blame for that. But so far as it depends on you, you're to live peaceably with all. All means all in that circumstance. All people. Okay, live peaceably with all. You are not to bring about your own justice in this world. God brings about his justice in his timing. Okay, he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The only one who can administer justice is the judge, right? Since you're not the judge, you have no right to administer justice. He is the only judge. Okay, what about righteousness? Righteousness, God is the only one who is good. What righteousness do you have that is your own? What righteousness can you plant in the ground and produce life? Are you getting it? What justice can you plant in the ground to bring about life? You're not the judge. You, you can't do anything about justice. You are not good. You can't do anything about righteousness. So this is teaching us plainly that you cannot do anything to plant anything in the ground that's going to produce life. You cannot give life to yourself. You can't do it. You're not good. And righteousness and justice is what needs to be planted. Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, and it's written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. So there is nothing good in you, there is nothing for you to plant that life may abound. All right, again, Luke 18, 19, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What about peace and rest? Can you have peace and rest in this life? Because we already saw this is what the Spirit of God produces in us, is peace and rest. I'm going to read it for you. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access into faith and to his grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And this we do not put to shame, but God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, why have I gone into all this? Maybe you lost track with me. There is a reason. Go back to our text. Isaiah 32. Until the Spirit is poured out from on high, the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. Without the pouring out of the Spirit, it would have remained a barren, unfruitful field. What would have? The heart of every single person. A barren wilderness without the pouring out of the Spirit. The fruitful field is deemed a forest. So what once was barren, now by the Spirit of God, is able to produce a crop that is good. And look at verse 16. And then justice will dwell in the wilderness. Righteousness will abide in the fruitful field. The effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quiet and trust. My people will abide in peaceful habitations, secure dwelling, quiet resting places. Now all that sounds fantastic. And the Spirit of God comes and He pours out peace and rest and fruit. Now those are terms that we understand from the New Testament, right? The Spirit gives fruit. It gives peace. He gives rest, right? Here's the fundamental question I have for you. This is why I've been working very quickly to get to this point, if you can't tell. It's because the Spirit produces this in us, yes. But here's the problem that we have. If the Spirit gives peace and rest and joy, why so often do I not feel at peace? I do not feel at rest in my soul, and I do not have joy. If the Spirit of God is in me and He produces that in me, why do I not feel it in my life? Have you ever asked that question? Where is that? Why do I only have a little bit of it? Has He limited how much He's giving to me? Why can I not have peace and rest? I want you to read this last little verse here in verse 19. And we're going to talk about it. Not, not in verse 19, verse 20, excuse me. It says, happy are you. Okay, so all of a sudden, stop right there. All of a sudden we've got to the point where he's, where he's saying, okay, now all of this, you want all this? You want to be the person that gets all this? You want to be a person that's happy and blessed? Do you want to be that person? Verse 20, happy are you who sow beside all waters? who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. So be blessed by that. Are you with me on that? I mean, when I first read that, I thought, well, great. Yeah, it was a building up to a big thing, and I'm like really disappointed at the end. Until we come to understand that when he's saying, so beside the waters, let your feet and the donkey range free, and what? And the fruit that is growing, and what? You need water to grow, how do I get the water to grow that there might be this pleasant field? How do I get that? How do I plant myself by these waters? How do I grow? And again, the question is, if the Holy Spirit is in me, giving me peace and rest, why don't I feel it? I want to suggest four things here. This is all coming back towards the beginning, all coming back towards apathy. 
the fact that we often don't care about our spirituality. And that is not me condemning you. That is the word of God condemning all of us. We do not care nearly as much as we need to about our spiritual life. But we care about superficial things. Money, jobs, how we look, what stuff we have, what we're going to have for dinner. I think that one's important too, yes. We care about education. We care about what, whatever it is. This is the stuff that we concern ourselves with. But what do we not concern ourselves with? Our spiritual state. And we should all stand condemned for that. But thank God we have a God who has been merciful to us in Jesus Christ when we were undeserving. So what do we do? We recognize where we might be in the wrong. That's what we do. Number one. Why might it be that I am not growing in the Spirit? Why might it be that I'm not producing a lot of fruit in the Spirit? Well, the obvious answer is number one. Well, not number one. Let's call this zero, okay? Is that you're not a believer, all right? That's, that's obvious answer number one. The Spirit of God is not in you. So repent and believe in the gospel, and the promise of the Father will come upon you, and the Holy Spirit will dwell in you. That's point zero. All right, now, if you are a believer, the Spirit of God is in you. Let's look at some of these things that might be happening. Number one is apathetic belief. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now, do you hear some of the terminology here? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. How am I planting myself beside waters and allowing this fruit to grow all around me, enjoying the pouring of the Holy Spirit? Do I just sit back and let the Spirit of God do whatever without any involvement from me? Just let God do whatever He wants to do. I'm going to, like I said, take a nap. And God will do what He's going to do. Or is there any sense of human responsibility here? Absolutely. And we're going to see it more and more. Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. But I thought I already had that. That's how I became a believer. Clearly, the theology here is that you can have faith, saving faith in Christ, but yet not have something. Hope and joy and peace. And that's why he's asking that God would fill you with that. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Are there times when you don't have joy? Are there times when you don't have peace? Are there times when you feel hopeless? Okay? That is part of the Christian life. It is a regular part of the Christian life. Now, should it be in the perfect world? No. But is it? Otherwise, Romans 15, 13 wouldn't be here if this were crazy. But it's here for a reason. It's because this is part of what we experience as a Christian. We go through periods of life where even though I'm a believer, I just feel drained of hope. I feel drained of peace. I don't have joy. But I'm still a believer, yes. But I'm, I just, life has got to me right now. Speaking from my own circumstances there, right? Not in this moment, but man, have I been there before. 
And I think you have too. Conviction that the word of God is true, that God is real, that the gospel has truly saved you. Maybe it could be that your belief in the gospel is just at an apathetic level, that you just shrug your shoulders to the reality that the gospel is real. Could be at times. Maybe it's this. Second, maybe it's apathetic repentance. Ephesians 4.30. Listen to this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You've read that before? And you've thought, I don't want to do that. But possibly could it be that we've not really investigated how it is that a person grieves the Holy Spirit? Do not, who's that written to? Book of Ephesians, the church at Ephesus. It's written to believers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Okay, how do I grieve the Holy Spirit? Read a quick little quote here from John Calvin. No language can adequately express this solemn truth that the Holy Spirit rejoices and is glad on our account. And when we are obedient to Him in all things and neither think nor speak anything but what is pure and holy, on the other hand, He is grieved when we admit anything into our minds that is unworthy of our calling. What is He saying? He's saying simply that remember the Holy Spirit of God is a person and that person relates to you on a more intimate level than any person you have ever known. And so, when you fall into sin, does the Holy Spirit grieve on your account? Yes. Does someone you love fall into sin and it makes your heart grieve? Has that ever happened? It makes you grieve. Now, the Holy Spirit of God that communes with our spirit, is He grieved when we fall into sin? Yes. I think more than we could ever know. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit means don't wander off into sin. Don't be disobedient to the word of God that you might grieve him. So could it be that we have apathetic repentance that here's the thing, we don't care that we've grieved the Holy Spirit. I've done this in my life. I've said this. I'm acting this way. I'm in this situation. I've done this to this person, but I don't really care. And you don't care that you've grieved the Holy Spirit in your sin. So your repentance is, ah, I'm sorry I did that, Lord, shame on me. Anyway, really like it if you'd give me that new job today. I mean, if your repentance is true and genuine, you're not going to be pridefully lifting yourself up to the holy God and asking for things in the midst of your rebellion. But instead, what that heart looks like is one that falls on your face in sorrow and repentance for what you've done. Anything less than that is an apathetic repentance. Yeah, you're kind of maybe sorry, but see that? We grieve the Holy Spirit, we don't really care. Or it could be this, number three. Maybe it's apathetic worship. Now, worship encompasses a lot of things, doesn't it? But let's look at this in particular. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, in contrast to that, be filled with the Spirit, 
addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks to God always for everything, God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay? A command here to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that is taken to some extreme levels in some theologies, but nevertheless, it is in our text, and it is a biblical principle. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we just had a conversation about this, didn't we? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. What might that mean? To be filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean get the Holy Spirit into your life. The Holy Spirit already resides in you. As a believer, the Holy Spirit resides in you. But be filled with the Holy Spirit means not grieving Him, and as we'll see here in just a second, not quenching the Spirit of God in your life. Galatians 5, 25 and 26 also says this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, we're not, we're not waiting and trying to usher God in and saying, in the midst of my sin, just kind of overlook it and just fill me up. I'm not really going to have a moment of repentance. I'm not going to do things out of obedience. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to be conformed to your word rather than being conformed to the world. I'm not going to do that necessarily, but what I really want is just to feel your presence. Give me your presence. Give me your spirit. That's what I want from you. Give me. Give me. If that's our condition, that is flowing directly out of apathetic worship that you could kind of care less about actually worshiping God, but instead you want God to give you something for no reason because you feel entitled. Because we feel entitled. We are not entitled to anything but death and wrath. That's what we're entitled to. Anything we receive beyond that, we ought to be incredibly grateful for. Be filled with the Spirit and address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and make the metal of the Lord with your heart. Now, as we were singing earlier, songs full of truth, whether you like how the song sounds or not is superficial. Superficial. So if you're getting caught up in superficial realities, you just need to forget it and look a little deeper. That was the problem with these other people. The superficial things mattered to them more than the significant things. What's the significant reality? We were singing truth. We were singing the word of God that it might stick in our hearts and that we also might look and see the people next to us singing and that we'd address each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and lift each other up. Let's get to the fourth thing here. These are things to evaluate, okay? It, it, do I have apathetic belief, apathetic repentance? I have apathetic worship. I'm sitting here, I'm singing this song, but I'm not really into it, not really thinking about it much. Anybody ever been guilty of that one? <laughs> have I ever been guilty of it leading you? Yes. Is that a surprise? It, I hope it's not. It would be crazy. I said, I, I perfectly keep in step with the Spirit every moment, okay? And you guys are bad, all right? Be like me. This, obviously, it's not what I'm talking about. We all do this. Again, this is not me condemning you. This is the Spirit of God, the Word of God, condemning us all because we are broken and we need to be changed 
and we need to keep in step with the Spirit who has been poured out on us graciously. But we grieve Him. And what else do we do? In apathetic service, we quench the Spirit of God. Listen to this. This right here, I'll be honest with you, is the point that I've been excited to get to since Wednesday. All right? So here we go. Apathetic service. I'm going to read three short verses for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. It says, Do not quench the Spirit. Stop there. Full sentence. 1 Corinthians 12.7. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay? Again, stop right there. Can we read these? Yes. Can we read and understand them just by looking at them? Yes. We have to read the whole chapter to get the understanding. In these particular circumstances, we can understand what they mean by reading them. Okay? Do not quench the Spirit. Okay? To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, here's what I'd like to say about this. We all have temptation towards apathy. We certainly have temptation towards apathy when it comes to service, but yet here's what we say. Why don't I feel the Spirit of God working in my life? Why does it feel like I'm just on this plateau of life? And sometimes I actually go down below the plateau, and then all the, the, the highest up I get is back on that plateau. I'm never just at a height of spirituality. Where did that go? Do not quench the Spirit. Okay, I'm really trying to not do that if I really understood what it meant. I would certainly not do that. I'll be honest, many times that's kind of what my take on that was. Okay, I, I don't want to quench the Spirit. I'm reading it. I understand kind of saying that. Don't quench the Spirit, okay? Like a thirst is quenched. I don't, I don't well, quench the Spirit. I think of it, the more I've studied it, think of it more as a, uh, as a hose filling a container and a hose that gets kinked. Okay, think of it maybe, maybe that way. Is that the Spirit of God is working in us, living water working in us, and can it be that we could actually kink the hose and stop some kind of flow? We don't, st we don't, we don't get rid of the presence of God. We don't get rid of His Spirit, but we... We do something to quit. The reality is, yes, we do. We can. But how does that happen? How do I stop the Spirit from doing something, grieving the Spirit, quenching the Spirit? Well, to grieve the Spirit is to be out of step with the Spirit, to be disobedient, to fall into sin. Is it the same thing as quenching the Spirit? I think if we think of uh, grieving the Spirit more as what we are doing that's bad, think of quenching the Spirit of what we're not doing that is good. Okay? Grieving the Spirit... We're doing things that are bad. Quenching the Spirit, we're not doing the things that we should be doing. In other words, the Spirit of God is going to flow and do that if we just wouldn't kink the hose. Maybe a little squirts get in sometimes, but that's not doing it for me. Listen to this verse. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for a manifestation of the Spirit, pause, are you eager for a manifestation of the Spirit? Because the church in Corinth was, and Paul knew about it. And Paul was on board with it. Okay? You're eager for a manifestation of the Spirit. What is a manifestation of the Spirit? Does it look like gold glitter floating in a cloud? For those of you who get that, no. That's not what it looks like. Okay? 
That's not what we're looking for. We're not looking for smoke to start rising up. And we say, oh, yes, that's what I wanted. That's, what is that? That's not what we're after. Okay? What are we after? A manifestation of the Spirit where? Here. And what does the Spirit do? It produces fruit and peace and joy in my life. And God uses me for the building of his kingdom. Where is that? Where is that? Where is that fruit? Where is that manifestation? Are you eager for a manifestation of the Spirit in your life? Yes or no? You need to consider that. If the answer is no, you're probably falling under all four of these apathetic situations. You don't care. You want the Spirit of God in your life? I don't care. Not really interesting to me. You got a problem. You have a problem. You are in spiritual apathy. But if you are eager for a manifestation of the Spirit, here's the one thing he says. Here's what you eager for a manifestation of the Spirit? Here you go. You ready? I was ready for I'm ready. I want a manifestation of the Spirit in my life. I want to keep in step with the Spirit. I want to walk in obedience to the Spirit. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So since you yourselves, you're eager for a manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. I thought it was going to be something different than that. Didn't you? You kind of hoping for something different than that? Oh, so now it doesn't have to do with me at all. That's the killer. Eager for a manifestation of the Spirit in your life? Guess what? It's not about you. What a selfish thing for us to desire. Me, me, me. Do something with me. Do something in my life. Do something with me. Uh, I see you're doing something good over there, but I don't care about that. Do something with me. I want to do something with me. But Paul points outside of the believer and says, if you are eager for a manifestation of the Spirit's work in your life, then serve the church and build them up. My question for you is, are you doing that? Are you doing that? Or are you eager for God to work in your personal life removed from everybody else? It doesn't work that way. And you got it? We have to get that in our heads. The church exists for a reason. You don't live on a spiritual island. And it's not designed that way. Be in the church. Serve the church with your whole heart, knowing that your service is rendered unto God. That is what he calls us to do. Don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together, but encourage each other. I need you to keep me awake. You need me to keep you awake. And right now, I hope what's happening is that we were drifting to sleep and we got smacked in the face and now I'm awake. Because this is what it has felt like to me all week. You thought it was about you. You thought it was about you until you were eager for a manifestation of the Spirit and it had nothing to do with you. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. Is the Spirit of God using you to serve others, to serve other believers? 
You say, but I don't know where I'm gifted, so I guess I'll just hang back until uh, some kind of gift appears without me doing anything. You need to see others as more significant than yourself. Excel in building up one another, and the Spirit of God will produce fruit in your life. Do it humbly. Serve humbly. You're serving the Lord Christ. Serve Him with your heart. If we're coming back to Isaiah's text, he starts out with these complacent people who are at ease. All they're concerned with is the superficial things about life. And they're never really focusing in on what's most important. That is us many times. Okay, it's all of us. I guess the question is, is that you today? He says, listen, it's going to be like that. It's going to be a barrenness. It's going to be nothing but dry thistles all over the place until the, Holy, the Spirit of God is poured out. And man, that's going, to be, that's going to be good because now all of a sudden, by the righteousness and, ju- and, and, and justice that were produced by Jesus Christ, that's the reason that we have the Spirit is only because of the righteousness and justice of Jesus Christ that was planted in the ground. Now we have the Holy Spirit and the Spirit is growing in us and it's producing fruit and it would continue producing lots of fruit if we repent of our situation. We would not quench the Holy Spirit. We would not grieve the Holy Spirit, but we would allow the Holy Spirit to work through us. And if I have portrayed the Christian life in a way that doesn't say you need or there is a, there is a possibility that you can quench the Spirit working in your life, if you have thought that and you thought that underneath my teaching, then I am very sorry for that. No one has addressed me about that, by the way. I'm, I'm not addressing a certain situation. But I'm just saying, we need the Spirit of God working in our life, and yes, there is something you can do to quench the Spirit's activity in your life that is a biblical principle. So what should we do? Well, it always comes back to repent and believe. Repent of your apathy. Repent of your nonchalant, careless attitude, carefree, nothing's going to happen to me. Repent. Repent also that you thought your spirituality was about you and not about others. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. Serve. Worship. Repent. Believe. And don't do it in a way that's cavalier, that you shrug your shoulders at, but do it with your heart. Don't do the things on the outside that make it seem like you're spiritual. That's superficial. But do it from the heart. Let's pray. Father.